This is State of Water. This is State of this Water. This is State of Water. This is State of Water. State of Water coming at you right now. State of Water, a podcast focusing on clean water issues and their relationship to policy, equity, community, and climate. Featuring captivating interviews with Michiganders from many walks of life, State of Water is the official podcast of the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan, a program of the nonprofit organization Title Track. Hey, this is Jenny from Title Track. If you resonate with what you're about to hear, put those feelings into action. Take the first step toward getting involved by going to titletrackmichigan.org slash contact to sign up for our mailing list. Welcome back, friends. Thanks for lending your ears. Welcome back to State of Water. I'm Chris Good, Communications Director for Title Track and the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. We have a real treat for you here in our first episode of 2023. But first, we wanted to give a fourth anniversary shout out to Title Track, our nonprofit home, and extend an invitation to you, our listeners, to support our ongoing work. From our Water Protectors Training Camp for Kids to our Understanding Racial Justice course for adults, from our work to amplify Great Lakes heroes here on the State of Water podcast, to helping shape federal policy via the National Water Equity and Climate Resilience Caucus, Title Track continues to build educate, organize, uplift, and inspire. And in order to continue our work, we need your support. Please give what you can and consider becoming a monthly donor. Any amount is appreciated and significant, and with your support, we can continue to be a force for good in the world. You can find a donation link in the show notes. Thank you so much. Our guest for episode 34 is botanist and musician Susan Fawcett. Susan sat down with longtime friend and collaborator Seth Bernard for a wonderful conversation fresh off of their annual ritual of creativity, collaboration, songwriting, and recording that is the band High Low. Susan and Seth dive into all sorts of topics, including Susan's unique perspective as a botanist, the desperate need that she sees for septic system regulation in Michigan, changes she's noticed in Michigan over her lifetime, her passion for the app iNaturalist, some epic scuba diving stories, and a walk through water-inspired songs in the 20-year high-low catalog, some of which are shared here publicly for the very first time. Enjoy. Susan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure to be here. I've thought about interviewing you for a long time. So this has been a long time coming. Can you share with uh, our listeners where and how we met? Yeah. So I was in high school and I had been, I got roped in by my podiatrist to join the Bliss Fest Music organization as a volunteer and had become a coordinator for young adult coordinator when I was 16. And part of the, my role that year was stage management for the second stage. So it was um, entirely youth-led acts and only youth audience were allowed in that year. They had like mm-hmm. a snow fence blocking off the second stage. And they kept the grown-ups and the children out. It was just like young adults. They did. It was like, it was a momentous... Um, day in my life because I met not only Seth Bernard but also Micah Mitta mm-hmm. and Tyler Duncan yeah. on that stage in that moment and I think we ended up playing a tune called Burning Truck together. We, we did, yes. One of Seth's tunes. Yeah. And we have been through so much since then. Um, you're one of my dearest friends and uh, I admire you for so many reasons. Um and we just completed the 20th high-low, um, which we'll get into later in the interview, a little bit of high-low. We usually talk about music at the end of the podcast interviews, so I figure high-low will be teed up for that. Great. 
but yeah, you were, you know, from the, from the very early days, um, very inspiring as a teenager, you ran for the University of Michigan Board of Regents as a green. That's right. Yeah. Can you talk about that experience? How old were you? What motivated you to get involved in that way? Yeah, I was 19. And I, the thing that really drew me to the green party was just, was having the a foundation in core values and beliefs that just really resonated with me. So this whole idea of voting defensively and trying to choose the least worst option. Um, so it was the, the thing about running as a candidate for public offices, you all of a sudden have the opportunity to just say what you really believe and propose solutions that you think are really worthwhile. And it keeps people on their toes. You know, it's hard, mm -hmm. it's hard to, to watch like some 19 year old undergrad come and just, you know, say what people want to hear when politicians are trying to dodge or, you know, get away with not committing to certain things. So it was, it was a cool opportunity in that way to just try to present some of the vision of the Green Party, which I really believed in and still believe in. Absolutely. And you got a lot of support. 120 some thousand votes. Something like something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. And so um, here you are back in Michigan. You're a botanist. And um, I'd love to just sort of allow you to share some of your perspective about how um, your understanding and awareness of botany has informed your passion for clean water and your knowledge of, of what, you know, degrades watersheds and what keeps them clean. Yeah, so I, uh, I took um, the field botany class at the University of Michigan Biological Station, which um, has a, over a century of botany has been taught up in this biological station up near Pelston. So there's just this amazing sort of institutional knowledge and this, these longstanding traditions and Ed Voss, who wrote the original Michigan flora, that it's just this incredible resource that we have been building on and using on, using for, for many years had started as a TA in the forties or fifties and taught there for many decades and the original so Michigan flora is like a handbook the, the book yeah the manual of the vascular plants of Michigan mm -hmm. um which is now a website it's a really wonderful website maybe we mm. can I think it's michiganflora.net we can put the yeah the link in the notes which is just an amazing free resource for Michigan plant um information so he he taught this class for many years and he was an expert specifically in aquatic macrophytes which are plants that grow underwater and so um, just speaking broadly about biodiversity patterns globally, one of the rules about biogeography is that the closer you get to the equator, the more biodiversity there is. Mm -hmm. So if you go to the Amazon rainforests in, in Peru, you find more species of woody plant or more trees in a couple of acres than you do across the entire continent of North America, north of Mexico. You know, just in a really, really small area. And that's that pattern holds up for all kinds of lineages, but that is not true of aquatic vascular plants. And so Barry Helquist, who is the leading authority on North American aquatic plants, thought that northern Michigan, specifically the upper Black River mm -hmm. in Sheboygan County, was probably the most diverse place on earth for this specific type of plants that grow basically underwater in freshwater ecosystems. So Sheboygan Northern Michigan, County, Western UP, Sheboygan County is Western lower peninsula. So tip of the mitt area um, on the Lake Huron side. Oh, so, Eastern. Yeah. I said, sorry. I said, West. that's okay. Yeah. Um, uh, so up there by Emmett County, Sheboygan County she has Sheboygan to in the it. east of Emmett County. Different yeah. Black River than the one I was thinking of. Right. Yeah. yeah. Sturgeon River, Black River. We got to be specific. Sheboygan County, Black River is. Okay. The most diverse the place. The most biodiverse place. On earth for aquatic macrophytes, which are vascular plants that grow underwater. Wow. And um, so teaching at the biological station, I then moved into a role as a, as a first as a student, then as a TA, and then have had the pleasure of teaching botany up at the biological station with um, my colleague Chuck Davis. Um, so we would go to these same sites that had been 
visited by previous classes for 100 years. Ed Voss took his students there. I remember going to the Black River where we would look for this plant, Roripa aquatica, which is this really beautiful, elusive mustard, wild mustard that has a, a really unique trait. When you go to pick it up out of the water, all the leaves fall off. And it's a, a matter, it, it breaks up into pieces and that's one of the ways that it um, is propagated and it really favors these beautiful cold spring fed, spring fed fresh waters. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's one of the exciting things to take students to go see this plant. And so um, I learned it there in the class and, and we went back looking for this plant and to this site and we got there and it just smelled like sewage. Mm. And the water had was just totally discolored. It had, you know, really changed character and all these plants that we had counted on, you know, taking students to this place were just gone. And the water smelled bad and it was mm. just like just a completely different scene. And so the, a huge problem in Michigan is a lack of a statewide policy governing septic systems. Yeah. Or like a statewide sanitation policy. Um, um, policy. So right now, there's an estimated 330,000 failing septic systems in Michigan. And most of Michigan does not have a requirement for a point of sale inspection. So that's to say like, oh, I'm gonna buy a new house. The previous owner does not have to get their septic system inspected to, to make that sale. So there, there are local policies in place in certain places where that mm -hmm. is a law, but for the majority of Michigan, that is not currently the case. And so to update, you know, something wow. like 330,000 failing septic systems, we'd need $3.3 billion. If you assume it's, you know, maybe $10,000 to update one of these. But meanwhile, you just have sewage that is just leaking into our rivers, our lakes, our streams, mm -hmm. and individual landowners just don't want to have the hassle or the responsibility. Frankly, it's gross. They don't want to think about it. Right. Unless sewage is backing up into your house or pooling in your lawn, you are not concerned about what's going on down there. Right. Um, but meanwhile, it's from a, you know, I, I saw it happening from a biodiversity loss perspective, mm. just seeing these incredible habitats, this amazing biodiversity being degraded. Mm -hmm. But there's also a huge human health consideration about right. this because if someone is sick, those pathogens are getting into service water, drinking water. And so we're. this is really a moment when I think we just need a statewide policy of, you know, the first step that we need is this point of sale requirement of, a, of an inspection, but it could go a lot further than that. So thank you for lifting that up. Yeah, you're right. People don't think about it. It's buried. They don't talk about it. It's something that's affected, you know, some of these vacation lake you know, places where people have vacation homes up here. I hear people talking about, you know, oh, I came up to this, I, I retired and I moved up here or I come for a couple weeks in the summer and I can't swim in the lake or the lake is just, it's changed. And, uh, and no one wants to bear the responsibility. I've heard of municipalities trying to get you know, property owners to do it. That's forty, fifty thousand dollars for someone to just come up with out of nowhere. But it needs to be addressed. So thank you for uh, for calling it out here. Yeah, and another solution too, apart from just the individual onus on landowners, is is these places like Elk Lake is a great example of you know yeah. there are cottages now all around the lake. You can't have every single one of those cottages getting bigger and filling in with their own individual septic system. At a certain point, you just need to install a public sewer system because this, this problem is not going away. And, and another problem, too, is it's septic systems failing is not the only problem with water quality. It's not the only problem with nutrient loading. So, you know, one of the things from a septic system is you're getting a lot of nitrogen or nutrients are kind of right. going into the water. So that can feed algal growth. Um, I'm really interested in aquatic vegetation and, and plants and diversity. Um, but that there's more than one kind of aquatic plant that grows. And leaking septic systems may favor certain invasive plants, may yeah. do better under certain conditions. So this plant that we were looking for that is now nowhere to be found in these habitats, Roripa aquatica, is, is one that really 
thrives in clear, fresh water. And so those are the sorts of plants that are, are disappearing. Um, so, but there are other inputs. It could be people fertilizing their lawns is a mm -hmm. huge problem. Phosphate and yeah. nitrogen from lawns that's leaking into the water. So there's a lot of things that can be done. Um, in Dane County, they banned certain fertilizers for people to use on their lawns because it was really degrading the quality of water of Lake uh, Mendota and Monona there. So there's a lot of different different solutions and people just need, we need to really help raise awareness on all of the things that you're doing at your home and how that affects these shared resources. Absolutely. I interviewed Melissa D. Simone, Executive Director of the Michigan Rivers, Lakes and Streams Association last year, and they have some really great programs um, sort of orienting people around the lawn practices um, having an effect on their body of water. So educating individuals about how chemical fertilizers are degrading their property value and their quality of life on the body of water that they live on. And then um, actually giving people tools to, to monitor their body, body of water and um, to share the results with um, the DEQ and Eagle or with Eagle and the DNR. So it's really great work that they're doing. I know that Flow is an organization that's been really trying to get um, some action around the septic, this confluence of crises with individual and municipal problems with septic and sewage, um, really infrastructure failing and um, a lack of a holistic policy and a plan moving forward. So it's, you know, there are some organizations doing some work, but I think all of us need to, to dig a little deeper. Um, so what's up with the Black River now? Is it, it's no longer you know, the most... that was the thing. We went to this site, you know, we planned to take students there because there's, you know, had historically been this amazing place for teaching to see all these different plants and this diversity. We just stopped going. I have not been back, mm. you know, and that was probably seven or eight years ago when we just just went there and, and the conditions had totally deteriorated and had degraded. So we sought new sites to take the students and I haven't been been back to that spot. Hmm. And and the Black River is a huge watershed and there's still amazing and very pristine places, especially upstream. But this is, you know, one of the lower downstream from a lot of cottages. And so, you know, certain yeah. parts of that watershed are, have been more impacted than others. Hmm. Thanks for that story. Do you have any other sort of case studies or experiences from, from your work? You've traveled all over the place. You're a Michigander and you're back here now. Um, of your, you know, your, the way that your studies in botany have taken you around the world and caused you to see things like this. Well, I mean, one thing that's just just so awesome about studying botany is that you can go to any place on earth and all of a sudden you're just surrounded by all these familiar and new faces mm. and just being able to put all of these things into this evolutionary context of relationships and familiarities is really special you know it just makes the world seem so much bigger and more interesting been out with with bird biologists before and you spend all day looking for the boreal chickadees and they're just like they're doing their own thing but as a botanist, you just go out in the world and every day is a wonderful day because you just see mm. incredible plants all around you, even if they're if they're just in bark and buds and dried mm -hmm. fruit. So that's a really special thing. Um, one of the other things that um, I grew up in Petoskey, really close to Lake Michigan of just a few blocks away, and um, I'll be 40 next month. And so I have seen a lot of change in that in that area and, and partly from just the natural fluctuations of lake levels. I've come to really appreciate that dynamic and appreciate these cycles and the way things used to look and the way they changed and then the way they came back and became familiar. You know, just the, the in terms of the water level and where it was, mm. um, it reminds me the shape, the contours of the beach are like they were when I was a child, but different than they were you know, 10, 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so as a, as a botanist and someone who's just interested in biodiversity and disturbance and different dynamics, um, lake shores are just one of the most magical, incredible places. Mm. Great lake shorelines, especially. And so one of the things that I've really come to appreciate is this dynamic that generates biodiversity through cycles of disturbance and renewal and, and also just the stochasticity of high water level years and low level, low water level years. What's stochasticity? So um, basically the random chance that you may mm. have a, a, a high water year, year now and a low water year later. And so just the just all these different patterns of how much precipitation is there, how much snow is there, how warm has it been, did the lake freeze over? There's a lot of different things that can influence um, lake levels. And then even on a small lake, it's just, oh, the, did the beavers build a dam this year, you know, on this outlet? Or there's a, so many different things that can, can relate to shifting water levels. Um, and that place between, you know, where the water begins and where the mature vegetation, say the forest, ends, you know, there's there's a lot of different things that can happen in there. And so having high water for a long time, then all of a sudden having a really low water level year, you just get this incredible bloom of all these things that have been dormant in the seed bank just pop up. Mm. So there's a ton of plants that really require this major shift in water level or variation and they they won't appear for 20 years then all of a sudden the shoreline is just totally carpeted in these beautiful blue lobelia calmii remember them coming up in petoskey you know just near glenn's market or something it's just like i'd never seen them before but then we got a low water year and there's just this incredible bloom Mm. so you know it's interesting there's this kind of dynamic in the great lakes of like the shipping industry would really prefer stabilized high water so they can always, you mm-hmm. know, get boats through with the greatest ease. Property owners tend to really prefer low water because it extends their property. Mm-hmm. You know, they have more land. Um, but it's it's that dynamic of shifting between low and high water that gives us this incredible habitat of, you know, Great Lakes, sand dunes, beaches, shorelines. If you stabilize a lake you end up with no beach. You end up without this like transition of habitat and without you know these years of remarkable wildflower blooms along the mm. shoreline. So I've just really, the longer I've been around and been able to get to know these places, the more I've come to really appreciate how special that dynamic is mm-hmm. and how it really defines these places that we all love. Mm, thank you. So speaking of high and low, Susan, what is high-low? High-low. Um, high-low is a band. It's a holiday. And it's, um, it's a, my, one of my most cherished traditions in life. You know, this, this 20 years. So fundamentally, it's um, recording on analog four-track tape. Um, and often there's four people, sometimes there's only two, sometimes, you know, there might be six or eight or all the people who came home with us from Shorts Brewery <laughs> to the Chain Lakes campground to record. Um, and yeah, it's just a, it's a time when we can kind of let go of our expectations and our roles and we can, can make music from, from perspectives that may not be our own Mm -hmm. um, and get away with that. Say some words that we might not say at a show at the wealthy theater (laughs) or um, yeah, it's a, (laughs) yeah. And uh, it started in 2003. It's so it's the time of year is basically boxing day to new year's Eve. That's the, yeah, that's the high low critical. Yep. And the first year that it happened, it was Dominic Davis, myself, and Luke Winslow King. We had this gig at the Otsego Club, Otsego County, oldest private ski resort in Michigan. And they had us playing at the Duck Blind Grill every day from 5 to 8. 
And it was Dominic's idea to bring a four track. Hey, let's bring a four track and do some recording, you know? We got the whole week. So we made this album. Micah Middaw came that year. Micah, your new neighbor from Breathe All Breathe, whom we met that night at Bliss Fest. Um, and then the following year, we carried the tradition on at the Otsego Club. And you came, and uh, May, Early Wine was there. Um, and since then, 2004, you and I have been the only members that have been there every year. In fact, one year, it was um, just you and I. I did miss 2000. I mean, I did miss Hilo 3, too. That's right. I was traveling that's through right. Latin America. Hilo 3. That's right. You yeah. were traveling through. I remember so I've, that. I've now. made 18 out of the last 20. Yeah, that's really good. So we just completed Hilo 20. It was a real landmark year. A lot of collaboration. Co-writing with Brad Kick, co-founder of Crosshatch. He used to be a Crosshatch board member. Wonderful nonprofit. Ben Travers is here now. He helped us with the, the last leg of the relay. Ben was on the podcast with Shantyland. He and Michael Dawes' uh, Sea Shanty Project. Um, some great videos in the archive from that project, that podcast. So one of the themes of Hilo has been also a lot of instrumentals and you've written a lot of instrumentals a lot of waltzes uh i that was a key part of me becoming a musician was learning how to play accompany my my dad uh playing these waltzes learning the chords on guitar um so let's hone in on some high-low material that was inspired or influenced by water and with the magic of modern technology we will be able to weave in some never-before-heard rough mixes of these Hilo songs. Nothing has ever really been formally re released, and that's part of the freedom of Hilo, I think, is, you know, we take it seriously as art, and we, we commit to it. But there's no overhead, there's no social media presence, no, no release timeline so far. Um, but we, we create a lot of material every year. And I'm eager to share this <clears throat> at some point, in some yeah, way. Yeah, me, you know, me too. You know, that's always been the idea. It's not just for us. Mm -hmm. we, it will be in the world, but figuring out how to curate this hundreds of songs. Yeah, and you did create a, a database. Yeah, I'm really data-oriented, <laughs> so it really helps me to have a spreadsheet and be able to, to sort by column. So... Spreadsheet is a work in progress, but that's just a way to try to wrap our head around Exciting. the canon as data. So many wonderful contributors over the years. So going back to Hilo. Going back to this water-inspired. Two. Hilo two. Which was my first Hilo. There was the catch and release waltz. Yes. Which was inspired partly by the Osable River, mm. the fish there, and a boy that I paddled it with. Yeah. And, Catch uh, and release. Yeah, the, another one. Sometimes. Another one on there is Chairlift, wow. which is um, really evocative to me of this experience of like a really bitter, cold, kind of nasty day, and you're just riding the sort of a janky, one of the older mm. chairlifts, and you can just feel like the wind on your face as you're passing under this crazy grinding of the gears of these massive towers suspended above you. Yeah. So that that's an instrumental... A yeah, couple of instrumental tunes that are evocative of summertime and, and wintertime water in Michigan from Hilo 2, which was... I had this Lowry Magic Genie organ, and I traded it to Breathe All Breathe for the Middaw family Fender Rhodes. <clears throat> and I used that Fender Rhodes on Hilo 2. I remember playing accompaniment on the Catch and Release Waltz. I think that was the first time I'd ever like played a whole song on the on the keyboard on on a recording. 
uh, if I recall correctly. And then also, uh, Chairlift was a really interesting composition because it was like, let's see what this drum machine sounds like when we flip the tape over and it's backwards. And then Luke Winslow King was there and he recorded some singing, but through a fan. So like the microphone's on the other side of the fan. So you get that effect of like a the chair lift. And then Dan Kahn, um, sort of breaking with the guidelines of Hilo, recorded some accordion a little later. He, he's an expat, so we only get Daniel, you know, a few days a year in Michigan. But he, play, he recorded some accordion on chair left. Boy. Yeah, so what else? What else? Oh, so that's back from 2004, maybe something more recent. Yeah, how about something more? Let's kind of shoot in the middle. Um, how about the Swimming in the Odd Train River? Oh, Michael yeah. Michael Beauchamp. Yeah, that's a fun tune. We had a few different takes of that that were, you know, of varying quality. I'm not sure we ever totally nailed it, but um, it's really a song about the, the UP and the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Yes, kind of had a prime quality to it, if I recall. We're swimming in the old train river, we're swimming in the old train river, we're swimming in the old train river when I die. Be splashing around, gonna have some fun, I'll float on up, won't even use my thumb, I'll be swimming in the old train river when I die. Be a maple in those woods over yonder, I'll be a maple in those woods over yonder, I'll be a maple in those woods over yonder when I die. Be yucking it up, sapping it down, pancakes and smile the whole year round, I'll be a maple over yonder when I die. Yeah, that was a, um, a barn roughs staple for oh, a few nice. years there, yeah. So that sometimes happens with Hilo, a song would get written and whoever led the song decides, hey, I, I might like to incorporate this into my show or put it on an album. Rarely does that happen, but occasionally it has. Um, yeah, we got the Slime, slime and Snails. Slime and Snails? Yeah, that was, um, well, I got in the habit of writing haikus. I had a lot of haikus mm -hmm. and... Um, I remember that face. Yeah, I got in a real haiku kick there for a while. As um, haiku is correspondence with people, and mm -hmm. um, and as I mentioned, I grew up in in Petoskey near Lake Michigan, and kind of witnessed all these transformations. And remem remember the quality of the algae on the rocks before the zebra mussels arrived. Can still remember the feel of of the surface of the rocks, of just that specific sort of algae that covered the rocks and the quality of how slippery they were and the clarity of the water and the little black snails all over. Mm. And then just kind of seeing things change with, with the zebra mussels arriving and then seeing this explosion of zebra mussels and the water clarity changing. It's world sneakers when they went out on the lake Slime and snails on rocks Zebra mussels came Footwear wasn't much for most I never got cut Water cleared up And then round gobies coming and just some years when there'd just be thousands of round gobies all over. And then kind of seeing this sort of stabilization take place where things started, you know, the water level changed again and all of a sudden it's like the lake was looking a lot more like I remembered it in my childhood. So kind of witnessing that dynamic. So I had some haikus about that that um, David Fetzer maybe came up with the melody and just sang some awesome, awesome mm. harmonies. Nice. Level up, red sea, 
What about, I, I'm thinking of Hilo 10 now. Maybe one of the saddest songs in the Hilo catalog. And there are some really bone-bending crushers in terms of sad songs um, in the Hilo canon. But I'm thinking, I don't remember what... The Arabella Waltz. Arabella Waltz, yeah. yeah. Named for the Arabella River in the Peruvian Amazon. So I had, I'd spent about six months living in Iquitos um, and had had the for good fortune of being able to participate on a research trip looking at genetics of catfish larvae in the river and, and looking at doing all these fish surveys. So we were sort of doing a backwards retracing of the route of Francisco de Oriana up the Amazon and the Napo River um, up to the to the Arabella, which is a smaller tributary. And um, so we stayed in this little village. I just remember, I mean, this is sort of a crazy situation, but um, it was like the, the furthest point upstream of any settlement in that area. And we arrived there th about the same time that um, a logger who had been killed by a falling tree had just come downstream um, on that same tributary. And his family and his home was another three or four days river trip downstream from there. And so um, he wasn't gonna make it home. He had just landed in this village. And we are there and um, you know, it took a couple days. This is the closest place where there was a graveyard or where there was a place with the tools to construct a casket and to bury this guy who'd been killed. And so nobody there knew him, you know, but we were just there. And for a couple of days, we were just, you know, sleeping in this building next to his body while they were building a casket. And I just remember going through his funeral and it was just like, you know, that we were all just these visiting researchers and, and the people in the village just said, we really want you to be here because none of his family can be here. Wow. And this is you, you are here in this moment. And so I just remember we were just there to bear witness and, um, you know, for this thing. And it was just, you know, still days before his family would even know that he was gone. Hmm. Um, so it was, you know, some pretty intense emotional you know scene there but you know the other thing that was going on there was you know these are places that you know people didn't have a need for currency people were living subsistence lifestyles people didn't really need shoes um, and all of a sudden there's just this influx of like money from oil companies who were coming and hiring young men and with that it was like an influx all of a sudden of coca-cola and plastic water bottles instead of like a, a filtration system for water, it was just all of a sudden people were spending very limited money on Coca-Cola or, you know, all the all of this plastic waste with no waste management. So it was just seeing this sort of this influx and just talking to people there. And it was, was not really a, um, a situation where you know it was just just seemed very troubling to me the, the sudden presence of these oil companies would just come in and you know they would buy a soccer field for the military or something and then you know and then be poaching lumber or logging they conducted their surveys they promised just a lot of a lot of different things going on with sort of globalization economy and just seeing the way that these places were being transformed and um, just really feeling for 
some of these these people who are not um, not that familiar with the roles that some of these companies have played in other parts of the world or you know the trajectories that have taken place in in different places and it's you know it's not you know my place to say what they should do or how they should respond or what's good for them or what isn't good for them but I just you know had a lot of concerns about oil drilling happening in some of these places that didn't think was going to have a net positive long-term impact. Yeah. Cause many years later the oil men long gone was too late that they realized that they had been wrong. They welcomed them only and opened their doors. Now their water was poisoned didn't have a net positive short-term impact even and the song kind of goes through that I mean, yeah. it completely changed the lifestyle of, of indigenous people who had maintained you know a sustainable lifestyle that was in reciprocity with mother earth for many many thousands of years and you know a, a multinational fossil fuel company can come in and change all of that in one generation and and indeed has done that over and over all across the world um, and we see resistance you know and I, I, one of the things that I'm encouraged by is how globalization has been had been embraced by the elites of both major parties in the United States and I think you know, there's a divide and conquer strategy, pitting working class people against each other. So you have people leaning right and left, sort of blaming each other, working people. But I think there are more and more people that are getting tired of that and seeing through it and recognizing that, you know, it's not working class people that have perpetuated this harm on other working class people. We need to figure out how to see through the lies and band together and, and resist. I've seen a lot of strong resistance from many different elements of society in Michigan around Line 5, um, and that's just one, you know, one battle. Um, but, you know, you have this giant, extremely wealthy multinational fossil fuel company, Enbridge, and they're still pumping all this propaganda out into the media and, and like, you know targeting local county commissioners specifically but there's working people there's business owners there's you know uh, anglers and hunters that are really saying no we we know what you're up to we've seen this happen throughout our lives and it's not going to happen here not this time meanwhile renewable energy is is more feasible and uh, more efficient than fossil fuels are at this point in time um, so we got to expedite that transition I think one of the things that needs to happen there is is for all of these folks that are have spent the last seven or eight years opposing line five to get involved on the local level trying to push renewable projects through and we're gonna have some episodes in the future of state of water talking about that where it's like okay we know that we're against Enbridge building this tunnel and continuing to, to build infrastructure for the fossil fuel industry, especially because this is the same company that's perpetuated the worst oil spills in Michigan's history, Kalamazoo, Crystal Falls, etc. Um, but really, we need to get to work saying, hey, look, here's the data. You know, these counties have put in wind projects, they've fixed their roads, they funded their schools, you know, they didn't pollute their watershed property owners are getting a little kickback it's working it's working across political perspectives across the state um, 
So you're coming back to Michigan in some ways. You, you and your husband, Bruce Baldwin, who I also would love to interview, brilliant botanist. Um, you purchased land, and it's on a beautiful feeder creek, uh, which has many names. It feeds into the Jordan. Right. And um, you're still splitting your time between Berkeley and Michigan, but how does it feel coming back, and what do you notice to be, to be different? you know, as you're starting to spend more time here? Oh, one of the things that I just, you know, just never want to take for granted is having lots of fresh, deep snow. Um, Mm. You know, one of the predictions of climate change is that we may get more snow and we may get heavier snow, but the periods during which it melts are also going to be increasing. So. So we'll um, get bigger sto- snowstorms. And it's kind of a microcosm of the last week. The last week is a microcosm of what you're describing, right? Right, yeah. Massive and, storm before Christmas, one to two feet. Here we are a week later, and it's all melted three days in a row at like 40 to 50 degrees. Yeah, and it was raining outside this morning. Yeah, and New Year's Day. Yeah, so um, just really don't want to take for granted, you know, that we have snow and that snow is what is feeding these amazing, beautiful spring fed creeks that Mm -hmm. feed the Jordan river is that water's coming out of the ground because of all the snow that has fallen in the past. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a big change, Mm -hmm. you know, just seeing, seeing the loss of winter Mm. as I remember it. So just, just trying to recognize that for the precious thing that it is and really take advantage and get out there and ski on it when it comes. Yes. Really enjoy cross-country skiing, backcountry skiing. Yes. We did some winter walks in the last week. One was sort of trudging through deep snow. And then yesterday we did a long hike into the swamp and it was like a balmy day. But I noticed in both you were I did, you were making these observations for iNaturalist, and I, um, you educated me about it. I noticed in your profile you've got over ten thousand observations for iNaturalist, and out here in the Skigamog Swamp Preserve, you did twenty-four just in the morning yesterday, um, which is really exciting. So it's a whole world for me to peer into. Can you talk about iNaturalist and y- your relationship with it as a platform and how people might? engage with it yeah i i described i naturalist there was a cool article in the new york times um a couple weeks ago that kind of summed up my my feelings about it i thought in a nice way and i told um told folks that it's my favorite way to interact with strangers on the internet Mm. um so part of that is that it fosters the sort of collaborative positive interactions between people where um they are accountable for having evidence and Mm -hmm. they're accountable for making choices and saying the things they say with you know reasons and and that evidence or those data are images of some sort of an organism Mm -hmm. and that organism comes along with its um, place in space and time so those things you know having having a an occurrence data of seeing an animal or a plant in a place in time is kind of the foundation of a lot of biodiversity knowledge. Those are um, things that come into museums. So let me just back up a second and mm-hmm. explain iNaturalist is... I love that it's though, because the internet has become overrun with disinformation and social media sites make so much money off of Beating people against each other, basically. Right. You know, this yeah. has all come to light. There's documentaries and research about it. But iNaturalist is kind of the opposite. It's like people come together in the name of biodiversity, and it's there's a peer review process built into it. You can't just come in there and lie. Right. I mean, it's a, you know, it's like Wikipedia in that it's you build a consensus, and that consensus is based on the evidence presented, which is usually a photo of a leaf you took with your phone. And people will, you know, use that image and try to to turn that into something that is representative of, of biodiversity distribution data. Um, but it's a, it's a way, too, that you can, can share the natural world with people. And um, I really like it just being able to 
to see the places I've been and the organisms I've seen and be, you know, like I said, I'm kind of data oriented and being able to have a query based search and, and bring up, just telling you about some neat toad that I saw, mm -hmm. right? It just very easily can go in and search all of my amphibian observations and then use a map or use date or use organism or use observer. You can sort by any of these different aspects. But so to, to back up, iNaturalist is an app that you can get on your phone and it's really, really simple. It's really easy to use. It's great for um, people of all ages who have any capacity using a cell phone. It's just one of the easiest things to do. Um, and so you basically can make an observation. You could use a recording. You could record a bird singing or you see a plant or an insect or anything you like. And you can take an image with your phone and then it will also record the date, the time and the place. Um, but if you're photographing a rare orchid or, you know, that blue line or that skink that was around here, mm -hmm. things that may be susceptible to um, people trying to collect them or go after them or rare endangered species, those mm -hmm. data, locality data, it. potentially, you know, right. and, and they're, they have a really Vulnerable. conservative approach to this. Mm -hmm. So a lot of things that are rare are not necessarily desirable. But mm -hmm. in an effort to ensure that they are protected and not being exploited through this app, those specific localities can be obscured. Um, but you can basically take a photo of a, a plant, upload it online, and there's a, a standalone program called Seek, which is incorporated into the iNaturalist app, which is basically artificial intelligence that once you have 20 presumably correctly identified images of an organism, that will inform the um, AI to make predictions about what the image of your organism may be. And so um, it has gotten really good. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area where iNaturalist was developed and there's just a lot of people walking around Silicon Valley with their phones and major population center, major a global biodiversity hotspot, there's a really amazing, effective AI there for, for organisms. You go to some place like Jamaica or the Dominican Republic, or even some of these rare plants in Hawaii, and the app is not going to work that well in terms of predictive identifications. But then you can just say, well, I don't know what kind of a plant this is, but I know that this is a plant. You know, in any, whatever level, and, and taxonomy is in a hierarchy, you know, so you, you go from kingdom down to species. And so you can just say, well, I think it's in this family, or I think it's this genus. Um, and you can leave it at that level. And then in addition to this sort of artificial intelligence component, there's also a sort of social network component where your friends or neighbors, or maybe the world authority on that taxon who lives in Australia are going to come in and put a name on it for you. So um, because iNaturalist is now has over a hundred million observations. Mm. It's research grade observations, I think 75 million just in North America. Mm. Um, it's become this incredible source of data. And so researchers are starting to use this and are starting to understand the value of having really well curated, high quality data. And mm -hmm. so global experts will just wake up in the morning and instead of doom scrolling through Facebook, they'll just go on there and say, well, let me, let me just identify some nephrolepis for a half hour while my coffee's brewing. So, um, cool. you know, people like John Redman at the San Diego Museum of Natural History has done half a million identifications, resulting in a really incredible fine scale flora of San Diego County. So, I mean, there's just a amazing potential for um, just doing, gathering so much data and just anyone can participate and it's just a fun way to to learn about nature to be able to share observations that can maybe be valuable to science and research and then at the same time meeting people and that whole thing of of these sort of positive interactions will be okay if you take a photo of a bird that came to your feeder and you post it on there people will say well because the it doesn't have this eye stripe or it's a it's a female pileated woodpecker because it's got a black mustache line and not a red mustache line. And, you know, people can explain why they think it is what they think it is. You know, mm -hmm. there's a, a section for comments. So if you say, well, I think this is a, you know, 
a pill bug and somebody says, no, that's a cockroach. And let me tell you why, you know, they can have an explanation. So when there is conflict, um, people have an opportunity to explain why they think something is the way it is. And then mm-hmm. you have the opportunity to kind of change your mind about things. And mm-hmm. this usually goes down in a really civil, constructive sort of way where, mm-hmm. where everyone just has the shared goal of like, let me figure out what this bug is. Yeah. You know, and people can just can all appreciate that. And, mm. you know, for the most part, people just want to get it right. And, you know, we're all working with the same information, which is an image or, well, here's this online field guide I used, or here's this other resource. So people can share resources with each other. Here's a link to the book that I found. And Has it helped in any ways of sort of like identifying things over time and, and marking the role of climate change and, you know, the introduction of species that weren't in an area before or has it, to your knowledge, influenced policy yet been used to sort of say, hey, we need, we need to, working with lawmakers, for example, policymakers to influence, uh, to create an argument, yeah. a case? You know, so one of the things, iNaturalist has been around for um, not that long, and it's just experiencing really massive growth, mm-hmm. really rapid growth. So the um, the uh, quantity of data is just expanding super, super rapidly. But most of these data have only been around for, you know, a few years. So I think the value in terms of looking at change from this data set is just going to improve because you know, it's like the fossil record in museum collections, we have a lot of gaps. So under, mm, there's definitely yeah. capacity to understand trend and, and look at change. Um, and that capacity will only improve as time goes on. But right now, there's an amazing project from this, this guy named Brian Buma, who's using iNaturalist to explore the edges of all life. And so he has a project, I think you can look it up, there's a story map, I can find a link where he's finding what is the northernmost distribution of every species in North mm, America cool. and what is the southernmost mm-hmm. distribution. And so he has it set up where he will automatically pull these data and redo this map and create this map that will show you the northern and southern distributional limit of every taxon in your area. So you can go onto his map and you can say, well, here I am in Grand Traverse County what are the northernmost distributional limits of the things that grow here and what finds its southern distribution here? And you can say, okay, now I know that thing. I'm going to look for it and see if I can find a further northern distributional limit mm-hmm. or further southern. So it's, it's, he's kind of found, like, what is the range limit of all these things? Just looking at a, yeah. you know, latitudinal gradient. So that's the sort of thing where you can, um, you have those data. You know what to look for and where to look for it. And then, you know even if people aren't looking for these things, if they're going out in the morning and making 24 observations on a walk for fun, then, you know, they may be picking up new distributional limits. Yeah. New county records. Right. And new things for people to look for when they pop open iNaturalist on their hike in the conservancy. Or, right. Yeah. Um, so... Let's talk about just your relationship with being in water. You're a swimmer, you're a scuba diver, um, and you've you've done some exploring in the Great Lakes Basin. What what have been some of your favorite bodies of water to swim in or, or dive in? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I had a habit for a few years of just always driving around with a gazetteer. Yeah, you know, me one of too. The alarm. You know, I just see, well, there's a lake I've never been to. Um, you know, this is a spot I've never seen and just put on my mask and snorkel and go explore for an hour. So I, one of the spots, I think it was Macosta County. It's like this diamond lake. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, there's a, there's an island out in the middle of this lake. I'm going to just swim to it. Mm-hmm. And I was just swimming through there and I just came a- across this huge cloud of freshwater jellyfish. Whoa. It's like, I didn't even know that that was a thing. You know, it was just like, are, is this for real? You know, wow. just going through the water and just seeing, you know, like hundreds of these tiny little jellyfish. Just Crassbetacusta sowerbii. 
you know, it's a, you know, it's, it's this thing and they just have this really mysterious life cycle, you know, they just appear and they disappear. Um, but that was really magical. Mm. Um, wow. Yeah. Another cool one is, you know, our, our dear friend, Wild Bill. William um, Templeman. Yeah. He's a, he's also a scuba diver and I, there's not that many people on the Great Lakes that I've gone yeah. diving with, but he's, you know, he's been my, my dive buddy. We love Bill, and he's always known to have the top quality gear. Yeah, yeah, and he, you know, had a hookup to get our tanks filled at the fire station as a volunteer, and so we um, got my dad's rowboat, you know, and went out to the into Lake Charlevoix. There's the Irish Marina, I think, is right there. We're asking if you know you know about this wreck of the Cuca, and you know they didn't know what we were talking about, but. Um, there's this shipwreck there in Lake Charlevoix. And so the Cuca was, you know, this giant, I think, triple-masted schooner that had come in and it was uh, serving as a speakeasy. And um, they had, like, giant maple ballroom dance floor, you know, this amazing wow. party boat that would just come up, you know, come up from Chicago, come into Lake Charlevoix and just have these amazing parties. And I think somebody got murdered on board, you know, and right before the investigation was going to come, the the ship mysteriously sank. But, you know, another factor that may have led to its leakiness is it had been hauling timber across the Great Lakes. And um, once they took all that cargo out, the, the boat was riding much higher in the water. And so the timbers of the ship itself were actually drying out a little bit and maybe separating so it became a little bit leakier mm. um but that ship went down right there in lake charlevoix um you know and it's it's really close to the marina right there and it's just lying on its side it's in about 60 feet of water but it's you know 30 feet wide it's a huge wooden ship sounds and like it's... a good song for hilo 21 <laughs> yeah 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 it had one of these like tide tide bottle buoys on it and um, we just rode out there with a little rowboat and, and went down there. I just remember going down into this boat and just seeing this huge wall of bass. Wow. You know, they're just all looking at us like, who are you guys? What are you doing down here? <laughs> yeah. We have never seen people down here. Yeah, it was just, just kind of awesome. So right you know? next to the Beaver Island Ferry Dock. Is that um, right? It's in Lake Charlevoix. Oh, yeah, Lake I think that's a... Yeah, it's right by, you know, there's a big marina there. We were asking around at the marina, like, where is this boat, you know? And we didn't have GPS or anything like that, but... You found it. <laughs> we found it, yeah. Wow. A little tide, tide bottle buoy on there, but... I don't know how much I should be spreading that secret around, but... Yeah. Yeah, we didn't penetrate the wreck. We were not prepared for that, but... <laughs> Amazing. So, um... It would be great to we could have a whole other interview and d dig into some more stories you know um bodies of water you've you've definitely traversed the up a lot explored up there um but rounding out this particular interview at this time susan we're going into the world of of infinite possibilities so if you could have any band from all time play at a benefit of your design for any cause related to clean water in the Great Lakes region, what would the cause be? Like, what would we be raising money for? And what band would you choose or musical act? Wow. Yeah. Well, I'd probably want Stevie Wonder to um, get all of our septic tank infrastructure up to code. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Bravo. So you want to pick up high low tune to play us out? You know, I think I feel like people really ought to hear trash beard. <laughs> Fawcett, thank you so much. Keep up the good work. Yeah. Thanks, Seth.
Thanks for taking <laughs> thanks for taking time. Happy 2023. Happy Powered by the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. This campaign represents an opportunity to help place clean water issues front and center by partnering with environmental organizations across the state, by educating voters, and by urging every candidate running for public office to make a strong stand on critical issues affecting Michigan's waters. Using storytelling and music events across the state to amplify the groundswell of public support for clean water issues, this campaign is driven by Michiganders from all walks of life who share a similar priority, protection of our water. Both State of Water and the Clean Water Campaign are programs of the Michigan-based nonprofit Title Track. Their mission, engaging creative practice to build resilient social ecological systems that support clean water, racial equity, and youth empowerment.